Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. What? Why are you looking at me like that, Gavin? It's a show about beer, so I'm having a beer. Ass. The following podcast contains... In front of people. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you ordered the triple shiner bock dunkle docky dick ale, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe and this is a Friday, June 14th, 2019 midnight three state beer run edition of the show where we talk about, well, all the beers I've loved before. Stay tuned. The What the Hell We Thinking podcast is brought to you by Fast Eddie's Ice Draft Light Nano Brew. Definitely not a keg of domestic beer with a fancy tap poured into a growler for three times the price. Are you in the mood for a crisp, refreshing, less filling but tasting better nano brew? Full body but not too bitter with a mouthfeel of zesty sister singing and a mellow golden aftertaste of a long summer day on the lake with friends? Are you looking for something low-carb yet filled with a classic taste of traditional American brand? Different, yet somehow familiar? Are you a beer drinker on the go who doesn't want a beer to slow you down but still looking for the good time feeling of friends in the town? Then look no further than Fast Eddie's Ice Draft Light Nano Brew, coming to you in three flavors, definitely not Burmweiser, certainly isn't Miller, and no way it's Coors. Grab a growler at any of Fast Eddie's Gas and Goes in the Howard Beach neighborhood of Queens. Fast Eddie's Ice Draft Nano Brew. When you have a taste for fancy, but the budget for Natty Light. Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Really, Really, Really Bad Dancer. Mr. Really, Really, Really Bad Dancer. Arm swinging, knees bending, head bobbing to no particular rhythm. You're either dancing or you have fleas. Call me the doctor. As soon as you hit the dance floor, the taunts begin. Is that all you got, Clea? Unfortunately, yes, that's all you got. Hold on now. Who's in the house? Some guy who can't dance. That's who's in the house. So crack open a nice cold Bud Light, Mr. Happy Feet, because you really put the oogie in boogie. Mr. Beer was an important part of my youth. Now, don't get me wrong. I didn't like beer at first. I thought it, uh, I thought it tasted like feet. And considering the kind of swill I was drinking in my youth, I, I wasn't wrong. But as a cultural element, it transcended the taste because it was how young men lift them in tone, our young bodies rippling at the peak of our youth, our hormones throbbing in our veins, gathered together, often shirtless and sweaty from our workout and bonded but not in a gay way it was such an important part of our culture that the mere acquisition of the substance was far more important in some ways than its consumption 
One night in the summer of 1989, my friends and I were sitting around one evening debating where we might obtain said beer without the nagging constraints of, you know, the law, as the oldest of us was still six months shy of the legal drinking age of 21 in the state of Arkansas. Now, possessing a fake ID wasn't an option as the military frowned on that sort of thing and punished it rather severely, but we all knew places that didn't so much care how old you were. So we piled in the car and drove to the local roadside store where the old man behind the counter was usually too drunk himself to card us and found it closed. What do we do now? What the hell do we do now? One of my buddies remembered a place just right across the border in Tennessee, about 20 miles away, that had lax standards for beer purchases. So we peeled out of the parking lot, shooting gravel into the air behind us, and drove the 20 miles to, across the Mississippi into the, over the Tennessee state line to a seedy little gas station in the middle of bumfuck. My pal ran in, disappeared from sight, only to emerge a few minutes later sans suds. It seemed the wrong cashier was working, and she wouldn't sell to him. Again, we were forced to rethink our plan. Now, we could have just gone home. After all, it was just beer. But damn it, it was more than just beer. It was a fucking mission. And security police airmen completed their mission. There was one chance. It would require risk. But after a brief discussion, we knew we had to take it. Across the Missouri line, 45 minutes drive from where we were, a package store we all knew would sell to us. We bought there many times before, but it closed at 1 a.m. 1 a.m., exactly 45 minutes from the time that this was transpiring. So we peeled out of that Tennessee parking lot, crossed back into Arkansas, and drove like hell on the back roads, blasting tunes and laughing our asses off like we were driving a Trans Am block in a big, big rig full of bootleg gores. We crossed the Missouri state line with nine miles and nine minutes to go and flew down the highway until we reached the liquor store. I shit you not, it was in a town called Cooter, Missouri. And a little place called Earl's Sip and Suds. We bolted out of the car just as Earl was locking up the door, panting and laughing. And Earl looked us up and down, shook his head, and waved us in. And we purchased a 12-pack of the cheapest beer in the store. Bush light, and then drove off into the night. It was perhaps the best night of our young lives. Although, to be honest, there wasn't a whole lot going on in Blyfell, Arkansas, so the standards just weren't very high. Like I said, though, I didn't even like beer. And that was a controversial position to take in the 1980s, where proving your masculinity by doing things you didn't like was very much a thing. But in a move way ahead of my times, for a long time, I refused to drink beer all through tech school and dog school. I proudly drank girly drinks like Bartles and James wine coolers. Hello there. My name is Frank Bartles, and this is Ed James. You know, it occurred to Ed the other day that between his fruit orchard and my premium wine vineyard, we could make a truly superior premium grade wine cooler. It sounded good to me, so Ed took out a second on his house and wrote to Harvard for an MBA, and now we're preparing to enter the wine cooler business. We will try to keep you posted on how it's going. Thank you very much for your support. Which at the time were actually still good because they had wine in them. I'm not going to lie, they were pretty damn tasty. Kids today will never know the yummies of original Bartles and James before they swapped over the malt liquor to the federal government raising taxes on wine in 1991. Was it George Bush? you goddamn right it was. So eventually, I was forced to switch to beer. Not only because of the diminished quality of wine coolers, but also they were really expensive and beer was fucking cheap. But beyond all of that, I switched to beer because I was really, really tired of being called gay all the time. 
The 90s were no picnic kids, I'll tell you. Lucky for me, I switched to just the right time because the 90s were also the beer assans. <laughs> See, before the late 80s and early 90s, beer in America was boring, generic. If you'd had one mass-market American lager, you'd had them all. Just like now. Yeah, but even more so. Okay, so let me get into the nitty-gritty of beer, the history of beer in America. For example, the first commercial brewery in the United States opened way before there was a United States in 1632 in Dutch New Amsterdam. Heineken! Fuck that shit! By 1810, there were 182 commercial breweries in these fledgling United States, producing 185,000 barrels of beer annually. And this was not counting the endless individual brewers operating privately, particularly by German immigrants who kept the brewing tradition of their home country alive. Still, like a young Dave, young America was not a beer people. They drank mainly hard cider and whiskey, and they drank a lot of it. In fact, all that whiskey we were drinking probably explains why we bought Florida from the Spanish rather than leaving it to fester like the hellish swamp that it ought to be. By the mid-1850s, a massive influx of German immigration brought lager beer to this great country. Before long, we were putting our own uniquely American stamp on the classic German lager, making it a light and flavorable fruit that was something like, I don't know... Fucking close to water! But I'm getting ahead of myself. By 1873, there were 4,000 commercial breweries in this country, each creating regional beers with variations on the taste, but almost all German lagers. All of these, one of these original breweries was founded in 1852 by a recent German immigrant named George Snyder. Who the hell is that? No one you would know, but uh, you might recognize that one of the men who also bought into Schneider's brewery in 1860, Eberhardt Anheuser. Oh, him! Abby's daughter, Lily, married a young man in 1861 who would go on to take control of the brewery and become a name in American beer. That young man's name was Adolphus Bush. Oh, yeah, that guy. It is not unfair to compare Adolphus Bush to people like Thomas Edison because a Bush created modern beer. He was the first to pasteurize beer so that it stayed fresh for more than a few months without going skunky. He also revolutionized beer drinking by making it freaking cold. For all of human history, people were drinking room temperature beer and Adolphus said, We have pig in ground. Und we have rowdy friends coming over tonight. What if we put the beer on the ice? And thus football was created. Not to content to stop there, Bush shipped his beer in refrigerated rail cars and kept that beer cold on its way to the destination where it would then be stored in a stock room and returned to room temperature. But hey, you know, at least it was in a bottle, which was another thing Bush did. Right now, a man could get himself a bottle of beer from a cooler full of ice, wipe the sweat away from his manly brow, stare out into the distance while a soft rock song played in the background, remonstrating on how manly it was to drink beer. Boy. Sunset, the time of day when you don't just reach for a beer, you head for the mountains. The other and probably the most influential decision Adolphus Bush made was to bring back from Europe a type of Pilsner popular in Bohemia, most commonly associated with the city of Bomish Budweiss. Bush thought correctly that light, drinkable style of beer would be popular nationally, and with his new production techniques, he could make the first truly national American beer. And he branded it, well, you know what he branded it, 
and Budweiser was born. Open a Budweiser and pour yourself the most inviting glass of beer you've ever tasted. Sure. Cold, golden Budweiser with that good taste for good times. So go ahead, live life every golden minute of it. Enjoy Budweiser. Every golden drop of it. Budweiser beer is for folks who know where there's life. Now, Anheuser-Busch certainly wasn't alone in the brewery game. Regional breweries continue to churn out local beers and largely continue to dominate local markets for many, many decades. Names like Yingling, Coors, Schlitz, Blatz, Miller, Strohs, Paps, all produced local brews and held on to their loyal drinkers of those brews of their beloved local brands. Why a man could ride the rails from city to city, state to state, one side of the country to the other, and never drink drink the same brand twice. It was, to be honest... A beer drinker's paradise. Until... (laughs) Fucking Prohibition. Prohibition kicked breweries right in the fucking balls. Big breweries continued to produce anything they could to keep going, and the small ones just closed up shop. Americans stopped drinking beer. Too big, too bulky to smuggle. Not enough kick for a fast drunk and more trouble than it was worth for bootlegging. So even clandestine brewery was kept on a household level with small batches of beer could be brewed without notice. Prohibition did more to eviscerate American beer than even Adolphus Bush. When it was all over in 1933, the only the largest brewers were left standing. Anheuser-Busch and Slitch were the bigs too, and they they were the fastest to get production and transportation of gear and rapidly dominated the national market in short order. By 1940, beer production levels were back to pre-prohibition levels, but with only half the number of breweries. Any idea how much longer it's going to take? I just covered 300 years of beer history in like five minutes. Fine. Fine, let me wrap up by saying by 1934, over 800 breweries are back in operation. The big brewers started buying up the little ones, with, along with opening their own breweries all across the country. By 1950, just over 400 breweries remain, and by 1983, that number would be down to 80, almost owned, all of them owned by Anheuser-Busch, Miller, Pabst, and Coors. And while the beer industries had brought us innovations like the aluminum can, the pull tab, and the tall boy, the beer inside those cans all tasted uniformly and universally... Oh my god, it tastes like piss. The reality was there were four beers in America, Budweiser, Miller Coors, and sometimes Pabst. They were different naming conventions on the label, but sometimes Budweiser would call itself Michelob or Pabst would call itself Slits. I don't know. But really, they were the same beer, probably all just made in one fucking giant factory in Missouri and drained into car cans for mass consumption by dudes that were not aware and certainly did not even care that they were drinking the same shitty beer just in a different can. The only real difference between the brands were the, which sports stars appeared in their beer commercials, and before long, even that didn't matter because they all went to whichever company offered them the most money that day like the you know four you understand four that they were the beer market was homogenized and saturated and it didn't really matter because the big brewers had a lock on the market because it was illegal to sell beer any other way than in a can or from a keg from one of those brewers until (laughs) 
1982. For the first time since Prohibition, a brewery is allowed to open that not only sells its beer at its own bar on its own premises, but serves food to boot. In Burt Grant's Yakima Brewing and Malting Company Incorporated, the brew pub is born, and so is the age of microbreweries. No one knew it, but this was going to change everything. It would just take many more years for it to happen. But this podcast today is not about microbreweries. It's about the frantic steps the big breweries took to stave them off. And that really began almost 20 years earlier when a biochemist by the name of Joseph Owadis developed a way to take a traditional American pilzer and through the magic of chemistry make a bland, boring, and tasteless beer and miraculously make it even more bland, boring, and tasteless. But also the beer had less calories, so, you know, broads would drink it. The Rheingold Brewery created the first light beer in the form of Gablinger's Diet Beer. Sounds appetizing, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely no one drank it. According to Osway's obit in the Washington Post, quote, introduced in 1967, his product was called Gablinger's Dyer's Beer, and as Dr. Wadi said, Gablinger's television advertisement showed a man with the girth of a sumo wrestler shoving spaghetti into his mouth and down into Gablinger's, and that did little to help the cause. Not only did no one want to try the beer, he said, they couldn't even stand to look at the guy. Chicago brewer Meisterbrow tried again in 1972 with their Meisterbrow Light, Light, targeting the dieting beer drinker. From the Chicago Times, quote, Meister Brown Light sold itself as a light and lusty beer at one point, having a woman doing a leg lift exercise on its packaging. Also, not the right approach, even when it mentioned its premium taste and being less filling, unquote. And what happened with Meister Brown Light? No one drank it. So, Miller Brewing Company, now owned by the tobacco giant Philip Morris, as big a group of evil fucks as ever walked the earth, they bought Meisterbrow in 1973 and obtained the recipe for what would become the first successful American light beer. And how did they do it where others failed? They got famous athletes and hot chicks to yell at each other. Miller Lite tastes great. Yeah, but I drink it because it's less filling. Great taste. Less filling. Great taste. Less filling. Great taste. Less filling. Great Anheuser-Busch promptly countered with their own light beer and the form of a brew so iconic that even today it has a place in the palms of the youngs on colleges' campuses all over America. Give me an Anheuser-Busch natural light. Just say natural. You see, you doesn't have to call it Anheuser-Busch natural light, and you doesn't have to call it Anheuser-Natural, and you doesn't have to call it Bush natural. Just say natural. Johnson's right. Oh, you can call me Ray, or you can call me Jay, or you can For call me... For a great Johnson. tasting light beer, just say natural. But you doesn't have to call me Johnson. Two naturals, please. 
Yep. It wasn't Bud Light, but Natty Light that rolled out to meet the Miller Light wave that swept America. Bud Light didn't appear until 1982 to challenge Miller for the top spot on the canoe beer list. But when it hit, it hit big thanks to a marketing campaign that changed beer advertising forever. Spuds McKenzie was everywhere. Even people who didn't drink beer wore Spuds McKenzie gear, including people who were not legally allowed to drink beer. And as you might imagine, that caused a bit of a problem. The moral crusaders of the 1980s accused Anheuser-Busch of marketing beer to children, which, to be fair... Uh, That's exactly what they were doing. I mean, they weren't suggesting that children go out and buy their beer. No, no, they were suggesting that if they were going to buy their beer illegally... Which they will, trust me. Then why shouldn't it be Bud Light? Sadly, the moral moms of the 80s won that battle and Spuds was retired from the airwaves, but never from our hearts. Hell, Spuds came back as a force ghost or something in the 2017 Super Bowl commercial. Spuds helped make Bud Light the preternatural force in American beer blandness that it is today. But still, by the mid-1990s, the market for beige beers was straining as Americans were turning away from traditional boring-ass pilsners towards imports and the burgeoning craft beer market. Even your humble pod host went through a period where he thought drinking Heineken would make him seem sophisticated, when in reality, Heineken is nothing more than the piss of a drunk Amsterdam prostitute mopped up from the brothel floor with a moldy sponge and squeezed into an old Mountain Dew bottle and shipped off to dumbass Americans who couldn't tell beer if the prostitute pissed it fresh in their face. Too loud and too specific. Imports have always been around, but increasingly they cut into the market as the big brewers needed something to make Gen X drinkers think that they were, I don't know, exotic, sophisticated, or enlightened. Hell, even Coors could count when they finally crossed the Mississippi in something other than Snowman's Big Rig. We're just going to run over to Texarkana and pick up 400 cases of Coors. And bring it back in 28 hours. Whoa, I got a flash for you. That's called bootlegging, and that's against the law. But you know what? It wasn't Coors that made the first big splash on the craft beer, the fake craft beer market. It was Miller that struck the first blow, and it came in 1986. Ah, draft beer. It's always been the smoothest, freshest beer around, poured straight from the tap. And now, there's a true draft beer in a bottle. Miller Genuine Draft. It's not heat pasteurized like most bottled beers. It's cold filtered for real draft smoothness. Ask for Miller Genuine Draft. The Miller with the black label. It's beer at its best. I drank a metric fuck ton of MGD in the 1990s, so I know what I'm saying when I'm saying the entire thing was marketing bullshit. You see, it seems that a Miller exec went on a fuck tour of Asia, and he visited a Sapporo brewery in Japan. Sapporo, by the way, is Japanese for Budweiser. When they could, in the Sapporo brewery, cold filtered their beer for freshness rather than heat pasteurized, which renders the, the pasteurization renders the beer flatter and more bland. Cold filter tends to have a better head and flavor, or at least that's what the marketing material 
materials say. The executive came back to the state, slapped an MG GD label on some old Miller High Life kegs, and created Miller Genuine Draft. The only noticeable difference between MGD and any other beer is that MGD was a bit more sour than the others, so at least it had some kind of flavor to it. This made Miller a shit ton of money as people wanted to get on this cold, filtered nonsense, and it gave the other brewers an idea. Instead of making good beers, they could make gimmick beers under a new brewery and then sell those. After all, Americans drinking it would never know the difference. Anheuser-Busch answered with Michelob Dry, which was ostensibly a lighter, less, less sweet beer that did, however, have slightly more alcohol content. So, you know, that was a good thing, and it kicked off an entire dry beer boom. And to be clear, dry beers were basically a natty light spiked with grain liquor in the brew vat up, to the, up, to, up the ABV. But still, ordering a dry made someone seem like the pretentious snob everyone had wanted to be for a few years. Fortunately for us, the dry beer boom was short-lived and replaced by the less pretentious and somehow more annoying ice beer boom when Miller introduced Ice House Beer. Hello from Plank Road, where our man Paul has a special guest today, Rudy from the Ice Ring. Hey, Ma! When it comes to making smooth ice, Rudy's an expert. So, we thought we'd let him sample our ice house. It's always ice brewed, so there's never any watered-down taste, just more of what you want in a beer. Rudy? Tastes like I run over it myself. Smooth. <laughs> there you have it. Ice house is as smooth as it gets. Thanks, and enjoy. Yeah, I didn't. Mind you, Miller didn't say they were making Ice House. They created a fake brewery called Plank Road that sounded like a microbrewery and then blamed Ice House on them, which is actually a really smart move because Ice House tasted like someone took a shit in the beer vats. Of all the gimmick beers, Ice House was easily the nastiest, cloyingly sweet, with an aftertaste redolent not only of feet, but feet with a really Bad fucking toe bad fucking fungus infection. God, it was nasty. I don't know who the brewmaster was for this can of domestic piss water, but I hope that they took him out behind Plank Road Brewery, cut a hole in the ice, chucked him in, and then put the fucking cover back on the hole. Lights, dries, ice, ultras, selects, the imitation microbrews, oh, and the red beer craze. Anyone remember something called Red Dog? I drink a fuck ton of that. And I don't know why, I guess because I had a Red Dog and there was a Red Dog on the block, on the box. That was another Plank Road abomination. Red Wolf beer, which was Anheuser's answer to the Red Dog, was so sweet it was like the Kool-Aid man jerked off in every bottle. Oh yeah! Killian's Irish Red from Coors, man, I drank all that shit. Killian's was so bad it tastes like someone jerked off Lucky the Leprechaun from Lucky Charms in every bottle. There was only one decent red beer, and that was Michael Shea's from Genesee, which is a regional brew, and it was actually drinkable. They tried everything to keep their hold on the beer market and ultimately failed. Even the Hail Mary Pass of Zima from Miller couldn't keep beer marketing from splintering back into its original pre-prohibition form. And the big brewers are now consolidated in Owned by consortiums and cabals, the families long gone from their boardrooms, even Anheuser-Busch, Mighty Budweiser, a beer so American it makes you piss red, white, and blue, is owned by InBev, a Belgian drink multinational. I don't know what people are going to do when a six-pack of Budweiser costs $1,200. 
gone are the days of brand loyalty. I remember back in the day being so heroically loyal to Miller Genuine Draft that I was like wearing swag and hanging posters and mocking people for drinking whatever piss water they preferred. Bud drinkers were superior to Miller drinkers and people who drank Coors were widely assumed to be mentally deficient. That everyone was drinking the same tap water in a fancy can never crossed anyone's mind. Today, people flit between exotic sounding brews and tap festoon brew pubs and slamming natty bows or narragansetts without a trace of self-consciousness. So at least we've gotten over the crazy idea that a brand is worthy of our undying loyalty. Today, no one would dream of such foolish allegiance to a corporation over something as frivolous as a beer choice, but they would certainly let you drown in shallow water because you didn't share their mobile phone OS opinions. These days, it's about the hard liquor and the cocktail, which somehow is much, much worse than the beer snobs. Because here I am. I'm standing at the bar. I'm waiting to get a goddamn Jameson on the rocks. It's the literal, simple, quickest thing at the fucking bar. And I'm stuck behind Bethany and Jaden, who are perusing the cocktail menu and asking if the Cointro was ethically sourced. Then Jaden decides that he would rather see the whiskey list. Motherfucker, order a shot of fucking whiskey. You don't need to see a list. You see the bottles behind the bar? There's the fucking list. If you don't see the specially aged in Margaret Thatcher's coffin, 18 Glen, go fuck yourself, then they don't have it. And now Bethany wants a fucking mint julep, so the poor bartender has to spend 20 minutes crushing catnip in a glass. When two weeks ago, Bethany was an undergrad doing Jaeger shots off a sorority girl's bare ass while losing a beer pong. You aren't fooling anyone with your fucking cocktail choice, Jaden and Bethany. Get a shot and go sit the fuck down. None of this matters to me because I don't go out anymore. I, I drink at home. And when I do go out, I rarely drink beer, and if I do drink beer, it's always Guinness, which is owned by Diago out of London, so yeah, the filthy British own fucking Guinness. Still, Guinness is both heart-healthy and low in calorie at just 98 calories a pint, and since it's fizzed with nitrogen instead of carbon dioxide, it's good for the planet. Do the right thing, drink Guinness. Sorry, I got distracted there. They didn't actually pay me for that, but I felt like I owed it to them because I drink a lot of Guinness. What I'm saying is, is I don't give a good goddamn if Bud Light Lime is a fucking thing because there's always been shitty beer and Americans have always drank it, just like today. Pop an indie sports bar this weekend and check out the paws of the hooting mob and there'll be a Miller of Bud in there because one thing never changes, the vast majority of Americans have horrible taste in beer. But it also means, it also means you can't just fucking grab a beer anymore all the bars near me are replaced with beer pubs now and locally sourced ales and lagers. Meaning, should I want a fucking Budweiser, I have to order a fucking Brooklyn and Triple Auken pills. And God forbid I want to get us. Oh, sorry, we only have this triple chocolate milk stuff from Hoboken. Motherfucker, I don't want a milkshake. I want a fucking Guinness. And why should I have to have a fucking linguistics degree to order a fucking beer made on Staten Island? This ain't Germany, motherfucker. And what the fuck is a Buchen Dukai Schwartz der Howard Beach? Fuck, just give me a shot of whiskey. And so I order the shot of whiskey and I turn around and there are Jaden and fucking Bethany with the cocktail menu. That is it for our show this week. You're probably wondering why the hell I'm talking about beers from the 90s instead of I don't know anything else. Well, I'll tell you. I turned 50 last week. I'm feeling very fragile and nostalgic, so you should plan on getting a lot of these shows until I'm forced to do them on some horrible current event like Joe Biden winning the Democratic nomination. 
Someone said at my, said at my birthday party soiree that they felt the shows were getting much more personal, biographic, even confessional. And I want to say that yes, yes they are, because I have not run out of lies to tell about myself, and once that is done, I will start with lies about people that I knew, and that should carry the show well into 2025. Also, you know, the world is a festering shitter fire of gloom and despair, so naturally I'm clinging to my lost youth and the cheap domestic swill I consume. Speaking of cheap domestic swill, rate and review this show wherever you are carded for your podcast. It helps other young listeners get their first exposure to something that tastes awful, but will mess them up just like an ice-cold Meisterbrow. All of my intellectual equivalencies to keystone light thoughts can be found on Twitter at the Hell underscore podcast, and each half-rack of bushlight that we call a show are on SoundCloud at the show name and at whatthehellpodcast.com. So for me, Dave... Bledsoe, producer... Wise... Gavin, and all the fictional Her. on this show, we want to say all we need is a 10 and a fiver and a car key and a sober driver. We'll see you all next week. All we need is a 10 and a fiver, a car and a key and a sober driver. B-double-E-double-R-U-N A couple of frat guys from Abilene drove out all night to see Robert Earl Keane at the K-Pig Swine and Soiree Dance. They wore baseball caps and khaki pants. They wanted cigarettes, so to save a little money, they bumped one off this hippie that smelled kind of funny. And the next thing they knew, they was both really hungry and pretty thirsty, too. B-double-E-double-R-U-N, B-double-E-double-R-U-N, Need is a ten and a fiver, a car and a key and an able driver. B double E double R U N. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings podcasts.